Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, a weekly podcast devoted to those who preach and to the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jason Allen, president of Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, I want to welcome Dr. John Fesco to the podcast. Dr. Fesco serves as the Harriet Barber Professor of Systematic and Historical Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. He's an ordained minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, serving as a church planter, pastor, and teacher. Dr. Fesco is also an accomplished author, having recently written The Need for Creeds Today, Confessional Faith in a Faithless Age, and also having authored or edited more than 20 works. Dr. Fesco, welcome to Preaching and Preachers. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be with you on the podcast today. Well, I've been looking forward to this conversation for some time, and uh, really ever since your book came out, The Need for Creeds, uh, the Need for Creeds Today, Confessional Faith in a Faithless Age, and uh, wanted to talk about it because the book applies not just to theological institutions or, or those giving their lives to, to formal ministry preparation, but it really applies to every pastor, every minister, all those who are engaged in local church service. Uh, before we get to that, though, I uh, want to give us a word of a, a context here for yourself and allow you to introduce yourself a bit to our listeners. And so tell us a bit about your your ministry, your family, and Perhaps what's uh, before you by way of writing projects? Yeah, I've um, you know I've been in the ministry for uh, close to 25 years, and so uh, I've been in the Presbyterian context in that respect, and and uh, have really enjoyed it. Uh, I've you know served as a as a church planter and later as a pastor, and and now I've been uh, serving in in full time academics for about uh, 13 or 14 years. And so it's been a real blessing. I, I enjoy teaching and uh, preaching. I, right now, I've been doing a, a uh, an interim uh, kind of preaching uh, preaching uh, opportunity, as a pastor has been dealing with some uh, medical issues. And so I've been preaching morning and evening services for about two years now. And so I, I still love getting in the pulpit. Uh, my my family and I uh, we live here, you know, in the Jackson, Mississippi area. And I have a wonderful wife and. And three kids. Uh, the three kids keep me on my toes, and uh, you know they uh, they're full of life. Uh, and uh, so we we just yeah things have just been going really well for us. And and I've been I've got a number of uh, I don't know irons uh, in the fire, uh, so to speak. And that uh, I've got uh, you know a book on the covenant of works that's coming out uh, in the next couple of weeks here that I'm really excited about and. I've got some other smaller projects uh, that are coming out, uh, God willing, sometime, or very shortly after the new year, I've edited a book on uh, natural theology. The natural theology lectures by Gerhardus Voss was able, it was, was, I felt like a little bit like Indiana Jones, got into some archival research and got somebody to translate these lectures out of Dutch, worked with some other uh, really uh, highly, you know, uh, skilled and and, uh, knowledgeable people to get these lectures produced, and uh, I edited uh, them and did the uh, critical apparatus. And so these these lectures haven't been seen in about, uh, I don't know, about 120 years, really, locked away in archives. So it's pretty exciting to, to, to get that. I, I felt like I should have uh, bought a fedora as I was working on this project. And so those are just some of the things I've been working on and, uh, you know, working on some other things. But uh, the Lord has definitely been kind to us, as he's been to so many of us. Uh, in the midst of uh, this uh, whole uh, 
the last 20 plus months we call the the the, 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 the pandemic, uh, I feel like it's been the, the longest 10 years of my life. But uh, I'm sure it's been that way for a number of people, and unfortunately, maybe even far worse for others as they've uh, struggled through these situations. But uh, it's you know the Lord is definitely blessed in the midst of these uh, challenging times, and so uh, yeah, it's been it's been great. It's been great. Well, look, if you're going to go Indiana Jones and buy the fedora, uh, get the whip, the pistol, and the Alden boots as well. Just just go just go all the way in with it. So I'm curious, and not to geek out here too much, because it's not the topic yeah. for us today, but but what drew you to the Voss Project? How did you encounter or get at least get drawn into uh, these previously unpublished lectures? You know, uh, I've always had a great appreciation for Gahardus Voss. I've really enjoyed his work, and then after watching his... Um, his systematic theology lectures get translated and published. I knew that there was there were other materials, other lectures that existed, and I had heard rumors that there were these these lectures. And sometimes, you know, I, I'm sure all of us when we write and we do research, sometimes we get to be like a, a, a pit bull on a t-bone, and we we find something that we really, you know, get you know curious about, and we want to find out more. And there have been so few lectures uh, or books, really, for that matter on natural theology, per se, that I've ever seen by a Reformed author. So I was really curious as to see how Gerhardus Voss would handle it and, and whether or not he was kind of in the mold of the old Princeton tradition of Hodge and, and Warfield and others, or if he would have uh, kind of produced perhaps what some might say is, is his own unique contribution. And, and so it was just that kind of a curiosity. Uh, it's like ever since, I mean, no joke, ever since I was a kid, when I was, say, four years old, my parents would have a uh, company over, and the next morning I'd go digging through the trash to find out what they had, had eaten. Uh, I'm not sure what motivated me to do that other than just curiosity uh, and wanting to know, but that's kind of the way I, I felt like uh, with this project. But, of course, it, it, archives are a whole lot cleaner uh, to dig through than garbage cans are. So, uh, Yeah, was, I, I encourage you to spend your time at archives <laughs> and not dumpster diving. But, uh, hey, I, I get the picture that's for right. sure. So tell me then, as to your book, uh, The Need for Creeds Today, I'm curious what your inspiration for the book was. You know, I've always had a great interest in understanding and studying the creeds of the Church, the confessions of the Church, and, and in my own denominational context, uh, I subscribe as an as a ordination requirement to the Westminster Standards, of course, as, a, uh, as, as an authority that's subordinate to the supreme authority of Scripture in all things. But uh, So I've, I've had that interest, but then what happened is that uh, I was invited by the um, uh, Texas Area Association of Reformed Baptist Churches to deliver some lectures on um, on creeds and confessions, and uh, they gave me a number of topics that were related to that. And I thought, you know, let me see if I can write these up and, uh, and not just put together outlines, but actually put together essentially chapters of a small book so that I can later uh, maybe distribute these a bit more widely to make them more accessible. Because unless you, you know, either go to the conference or maybe, you know, we're able to somehow uh, get a hold of the recordings online, uh, you might not be able to get to them. And so I thought this might make it a little bit more accessible for people. And so I wanted to put them in a brief but uh, hopefully accessible format so that we could uh, all uh, learn a little bit more about uh, the importance of creeds and confessions for the Church. Now, let me stop you right there, because you're saying creeds mm -hmm. and confessions. For our listeners, what's mm -hmm. the difference and why does it matter? 
Yeah. A, a creed is typically a terse doctrinal statement, and by terse we mean relatively short. So you might think of the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed that is that, that, that set out to define uh, doctrine, to define the differences, say, between um, you know, uh, orthodoxy and heterodoxy, or worse, heresy. In other words, teaching that would be condemned by the Church as being contrary to the teaching of Scripture, whereas heterodoxy is just an alternative opinion that is an error, uh, but maybe not as grave as, as heresy. And so uh, that, that's the nature of a creed. So it's, it's brief, and it's, it's short, and it's, it's something that's often, for example, conducive for use in worship. Uh, I've you know, been in a number of churches over the years where you know, we will recite, for example, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. A confession, by way of contrast, is a, is a, is a fuller uh, doctrinal uh, statement, and it's not just about a, a number of doctrines or perhaps one doctrine, say, for example— with the Nicene Creed, you know, that's a statement on the doctrine of the um, uh, doctrine of Christ, but rather it's more of a full orb statement of a complete body of, of belief about uh, everything from the creation all the way to last things from God to, you know, the new creation. And, uh, and so you see that, say, in the Second London Confession that Baptists confess. Uh, or say the the 1644 Baptist Confession, or the um, uh, the uh, you know Westminster Confession, or uh, in uh, the Dutch Continental Reform circles, the three forms of unity, the Canons of Dort, the Belgic Confession, and the Heidelberg Catechism. These are full orbed uh, statements of of belief, and they summarize the entire teaching. Uh, of the the, the doc, entire doctrinal teaching of Scripture, and so that those would be, I think, the distinctions that we could make between the two. There's some overlap, obviously, between them, uh, but uh, you know the creeds are much more uh, the much shorter and often more targeted, whereas confessions and catechisms are a bit more expansive and and treat a wider range of topics. So I often tell folks who are inquiring about seminaries, you know, there are different ways to categorize seminaries. Large, small, mm-hmm. you know, by size, uh, fully endowed, not mm-hmm. endowed, by denominational affiliation, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of different ways. But really, the primary way, the most important way to categorize a seminary is whether it's confessional or not. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you agree with that statement? Yes, I do. It's it's so important. I think when you're looking at various seminaries, to be able to very quickly assess where a particular institution, uh, you know, rests on a number of different uh, doctrinal topics. What, what do they believe about Scripture? What do they believe about Christ? What do they believe about salvation? And there, are, there can be some institutions that have no confessional anchor so that, you know, you show up and you have little to no idea as to what the professors might teach or what they believe, and not only do you have little ideas to what they believe and teach, but it's possible to get completely contradictory opinions about the same topic from one professor to the next, because it largely amounts to what we could say is a, a theological salad bar that, you know, it's kind of hit or miss. You just don't know what you're going to get. Whereas if there is a, a confessional spine to the institution, then you know that you're going to get a cohesive uh, body of conviction and belief out of the institution and out of the professors, doctrinally speaking, 
they'll be on the same page. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily walking in lockstep, because oftentimes within confessions of faith, there's are what we would call pressure release points or you know pressure valves that you know give people a various number of positions behind the fence of orthodoxy that they can affirm, where they say, okay, we can agree that principally here are the key points that we need to, to, to believe in, but that there's a range of orthodox opinions within this doctrine or within this, you know, confession of faith. So it's just going to ensure that there's a cohesiveness to the, to the education and to the curriculum. Uh, and uh, in the end, it's also going to summarize very briefly what an institution believes ultimately about the Bible. So I think that's, yeah, that's a, that's a terrific piece of advice to give prospective students. Well, in my own context, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, um, you know, there there are, and not just the 2000 edition, but the previous editions, there were some strategic mm-hmm. points of flexibility. Uh, the the mm-hmm. three big areas that people often speak to and uh, perceive are the fact that uh, it was intentionally not specific on the age of the earth when originally issued in the mm-hmm. 1920s, uh, mm-hmm. and, and intentionally some, some, some elbow room around the doctrines of grace and predestination, mm-hmm. and then thirdly, some intentional elbow room around eschatology. And, uh, and again, mm-hmm. like, confessions may not be as tight as any one subscriber would want them to be over certain points, but they ought to be clear and as tight uh, as that gathered body, as that as that assembled body, whether it's a church or, or a collection of churches, uh, as they intend to to set the fences around them. And and look, it's not only mm-hmm. that that schools now shifting gears back from churches to schools or institutions is not just that they have a doctrinal statement or not, but it actually matters. That actually is an mm-hmm. instrument of accountability. It's not just on the book somewhere, it's not just on the website somewhere, but actually professors sign to teach uh, and to believe for us in accordance with and not contrary to that confessional statement. But I want to focus mm-hmm. in not just, uh, I want to move beyond the, the institutional level to the local church level. And mm-hmm. uh, why should confessions matter at the local church level? Why should pastors be mindful of them to, uh, to live by them and to make sure they are mm-hmm. actually used within the life of the church? Why should church members be asking or potential church members ask, what does this congregation believe? What should I expect to be taught from the pulpit and then in Bible study and Sunday school settings? Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's such a good question from the vantage point that when we're looking at, say, a prospective church, you know, one of the questions that we should ask ourselves is how connected are they uh, to the Catholic faith? And by Catholic, I mean lowercase c, uh, not as in capital C as in Roman Catholic, but Catholic as in universal, you know, to borrow a phrase from the Apostles' Creed, one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And so it's the question of how deep is, is are, are the theological roots, are the biblical roots of the particular church that we're looking at? Do they only go as shallow as 10 years ago, say, when a church maybe was founded 20 years ago, 30 years ago? or in the scope of church history, even 100 years ago is a relatively short amount of time, or do they reach out their hands to their theological ancestors and join hands with the church throughout the ages, and to borrow a phrase from Jude, profess the faith once delivered to the saints? And so in other words, do we, do we join hands with the ancient church and say, the Christ that you affirm at the Council of Nicaea is the Christ that we affirm. So I think that that's, that's one of the things to, that we have to note, because 
you know, there's there's one faith uh, that that we are all supposed to profess, and 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 is our faith a shallow faith or is it a deep faith? Uh, do we share the faith of our fathers or, or not? A second, I think, valid and important point is to recognize how much these how how much these documents can shape the life and the theology of a church. <clears throat> you know, we you know so often people will say, well, just let me let me just love Jesus. You know, why do I have to have all this doctrine? And I say, okay, that that's fine, but can I ask you a question? Who is Jesus? Is he just a man? Is he God? In what way is he both man and God? Is he just partially God, partially man? Those are important, important questions upon which our ultimately our salvation rests. So that's one thing to say that, hey, we want to take these documents that summarize the teaching of Scripture, and they so helpfully uh, distill the truth of Scripture to us and give it to us, if you will, in bite-sized pieces so that we can we can better understand the scriptures, and we can, as some have said, stand on the shoulders of giants, and we can learn from what these gifted theologians of the past have have taught not only their own age, but subsequent ages. And then a, I think a third important point in use here is that they're they're great tools uh, for discipleship as well as for worship. You know, so that you, you could take a, a new believer through the basics of the Apostles' Creed as it talks about who Christ is, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, that, you know, what who the Holy Spirit is, and and, and you can walk somebody through these, these basic fundamental truths of Scripture, and, and they get presented here in the Apostles' Creed, and or as we recite these creeds in worship, for example, uh, it helps us to say that all of us as individuals, we can say this, you know, to borrow a line from uh, Stephen Ambrose's Band of Brothers, we stand alone together in that, yes, we're individuals, we individually profess our God-given faith in Christ, but we stand alone together as we are united as a body of believers, and we profess the same faith that was once delivered to the saints. I think those are just some of the, the key points that we would want to note uh, about the importance of asking, does a church employ and use, you know, the, the creeds of the church well? You know, when you look at the history of the church, and especially the history of creedal formulations and, and confessional statements, so often uh, those arise in context of heresy. The church is responding mm-hmm. to some doctrinal question, perhaps some abject theological aberration, uh, having to correct. And uh, I guess when you, when, you, when you reflect on that reality and you zoom out and say, in our era in the 21st century, these confessional statements, these creedal statements, which often arose in the context of, of heresy, um, if used mm-hmm. rightly in our generation, they ought to prevent heresy. And so doesn't that help to, to, to firm up the argument, not just that creeds and confessional statements were historically helpful, but they're presently helpful also? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely. I, you know, one of the things I tell my students, and maybe you tell them the same type of thing, is that you know, the great idea that we might think we have, uh, if we study the uh, the history of the Church and its creeds, we might realize that it's not a great idea, but that it was condemned as heresy, uh, say, in the 4th century or the 5th century. And so that's what these documents do. They're an abiding testimony, not only from the ancient Church, but as you said, they have abiding relevance in the present day. Say, with the, the Christological 
uh, creeds, uh, the, the, the Chalcedonian definition, the, the Niceno-Constantinopolitan creed, uh, you know, from 381 and, and Nicaea 325. Um, these are not creeds that are limited to Protestants. It's, it's Protestant, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, it's the, the anybody who professes to be a, a Christian, the, their their local iteration of what they you know they claim that their denomination, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, or Protestant, have all historically affirmed these documents, and continue to do so. So we should be very very uh, circumspect if we decide that we want to break with these documents, and or disagree with these documents. Uh, it's it's uh, it's unwise to say the least, and uh, if not foolish, uh, and so that, that that's that's how we have to look at some of these things. And so, yeah, it, it's definitely uh, a guardrail for the present. And again, thinking in the context of the local church, I served as a pastor for many years, as you have, and it sounds like as you are in an interim way. And as a pastor, and uh, th- there's something reassuring. There's something emboldening about reminding yourself and your people that the faith you confess is not an innovation. Uh, We can Mm -hmm. point back to creedal statements and confessional statements from past centuries, sometimes from millennia back, and realize, no, you actually stand in a long line of godly men and godly women who have confessed these truths. And uh, it, it strengthens you as far as your, your confidence uh, in your teaching and in your church's teaching and what you believe, but it also emboldens you in your witness to know, no, that who am I in my generation to be weak, uh, to, 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 be, to be passive about these great truths of the, of the Christian faith? So I'm curious, you know, that is what I have felt. Is that what's similar to what you have felt over the years, not just behind the lectern in the classroom, behind the pulpit in the context of the local church? Yes. Uh, you know, I, one of the things I, I tell my students is that in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about Christ in the wake of his ascension giving gifts to the church, and among those gifts are pastors and teachers. And I remind my, my students, as well as people in the church, that the gifts are therefore not restricted to the pastors and teachers that are walking around living and breathing, but that these gifts have been sprinkled throughout the whole uh, entirety of the Church, and that the way that we can access the, the learnedness, the intelligence, the gifts that God has given us in Christ through the Spirit is through reading their books, or in this case, accessing you know, the creeds and confessions. And so, yeah, it, it does give you, and it gives me a great degree of, of confidence knowing that the faith that we profess, that I personally profess, that you personally profess, is not something of recent origin, but that it is, it's ancient. It's not only, of course, rooted in the scriptures, and it begins with the opening verse in Genesis 1-1, but it's been affirmed, uh, you know, by, uh, by, by past generations, uh, as you said, for, for millennia. Uh, that is, uh, is, uh, is a sobering, I think, a thought, but not only sobering, but entire, at the same time, encouraging you know, for, for us as Americans, I think it's difficult sometimes for us to, to conceive of that or to contemplate that. We don't have very many old things around us. But when I, I remember being in Europe when I was in, in, in Scotland doing my doctoral studies, and I went to a cathedral 
to worship that was had been standing for over a thousand years. And it was just, in one sense, awe-inspiring to think that this building, and granted it had been, you know, renovated and, and improved over the years, but that it had been there for a, over a thousand years, and it just was almost unimaginable. Uh, and so to think that far more so important than any kind of cathedral, however long they've been, to profess a faith that has been professed for millennia uh, is is a great source of, I think, of encouragement and hope and, and testimony and proof of, of God's you know, providence to protect his church, and as Jesus Christ says, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and so, yeah, greatly encouraging and a great source of hope. Well, Dr. Fesco, I want to thank you for your book, The Need for Creeds Today, Confessional Faith in a Faithless Age. Every word of that title matters because the truth matters. God's enduring truth matters, both as given to us through Scripture and as encapsulated in scriptural creedal confessional statements that remind us what the church does confess, what it has confessed, what it must confess. Dr. Fesco, thank you for joining me today on Preaching and Preachers. Hey, Dr. Allen, thanks so much for having me. It's been a joy and a privilege. Thank you for being with us today and for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, go to my website, jasonkallen.com. That's jasonkallen.com.